Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting podcast, and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 12, and we have a very special guest, Vince Accardi. Vince has decades of experience in the betting world. He has developed, curated, and even mastered the ability to utilize data for form analysis. Vince leads the way when it comes to his incremental velocity ratings and uses those to formulate a race shape and profiles for horses around Australia. Vince delves pretty deep into some of the philosophies he uses and what the future may hold for tracking and sectional data. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy my chat with Vince Accardi. I'm joined by Vince Accardi. Vince, thank you very much for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me, Jake. It's uh, it's, it's a great honour. So, Vince, I am sure many people in the uh, Australian racing world and industry would know who you are and what you're up to. But there's always uh, there's always some listeners out there who don't, or they need a refresher. So, can you perhaps go into your background, how it all started for you, and what got you into the the business of betting? Yes, that, well, if I've got to go right back to the beginning, I guess I have to blame my father, or not blame him, so be very grateful to my dad who introduced me to greyhounds when I was around oh, eight or nine years of age. We used to go to Olympic Park mainly. We had a family member who used to train a few greyhounds and he was fortunate enough to have a fairly good one at the time, which was called Rupau. So that would be my first introduction to the world of betting and we had some really fun times and some extremely successful times as well because as it turned out that particular greyhound well I think it was 11 straight victories in a row so you can just imagine the good old Italian community banding together and really making a difference (laughs) to their life with the financial windfalls that they were getting for me I was more like a bet 50 cents so I wasn't allowed to bet in the real dollars I had to bet in the pennies but that was the first introduction and that sort of I guess the the fascination of times really they started there because it's all about times and how fast they come out of the boxes and the reality is that it was the first intro to working out how to do form so as I got a little bit older sort of 12 13 years of age I sort of became a bit more active with greyhounds and by the time I was sort of 15, 16, I was sort of doing two major venues. They were Olympic Park and Sandown in, in those days. And the first introduction to horse racing came at, a, at around 17 years of age. With where A company where I was working, one of the guys there was a real enthusiast sort of form student. And whilst he didn't know a lot about greyhounds, he sort of felt that why don't I sort of turn some of my thinking and form process work into racing so he actually took me out to the races on one saturday 
I never really looked back after that. I started to realise, well, there's some distinct advantages with horse racing. With the greyhounds, if they miss the start, you pretty much uh, your money's gone. We're in horse racing. <laughs> it's not the case. They can, can miss the start and you can still win or collect. So that was really the, the beginning of the, the, the whole fascination of form, doing it in a very traditional manner. Back in those days, the real main material was people like Don Scott had a number of books that he published, and that would be the sort of beginning of understanding how to do handicapping and all the standard variables to go with it, along with techniques for creating markets, even though it's in a humble manner, but it was still a way to create them. Ultimately, like all things, you still have lots of frustration and I always had this fascination about times. It was a it was a particular trainer. Well, one one particular afternoon, we were at a track called Caulfield, and one of the big sprint races was called the Oakley Plate. And this particular trainer, Cyril Beachy, he had a runner in there, which was a hundred to one thereabouts, and he was absolutely adamant that I should be putting an investment on that horse on an each-way basis, and I just couldn't believe his confidence. And I was I was sceptical, but I decided to go with the flow, and I backed this particular runner each way, and it ran second. And the biggest fascination from that was how on earth could he be so confident with a 100-to-1 chance? Because one of the things that I struggled with with doing all the form in the traditional handicapping way was I always felt like I lacked a level of confidence on how – aggressive I could bet with the chances that I seen and sometimes when I thought I was really confident they wouldn't do anything and other times when I was less confident they would win but I really really couldn't believe how confident he was so he invited me one day to go to his track where he trains him and then he educated me about why he had so much confidence that he had a number of great horses through his lifetime and he would clock them between point eight and B was a, a particular straight section of the, the course that he had where he would gallop him and that would give him tremendous insight to what ability they had speed-wise and I guess what sort of level they could be because he had so many great horses before and afterwards and that would be his measuring stick. I guess there was there are other things that you would look at from a training perspective and that's when I said to my – I had this imaginary dream that, okay, I'm not going to be a trainer, but what I'll do is I'll benchmark every single horse and I'll be the ultimate trainer because I can mark all the horses through times, of course. And that was a, a great dream but very, very difficult to do. <laughs> and I guess that's how the whole journey – where I really started to venture into sectional times. And when you look at it from a sectional time perspective, in those times, Jake, there was a lot of negativity around sectionals. They're unreliable. You've got track conditions to deal with. Impossible to utilise any type of speed to give you some type of advantage. Of course, if anybody was clocking, they wouldn't tell you, so you would have to find your own way to do those things. But it really was all negative. There was very, very few people 
in the Australian jurisdiction that were talking positive and the ones that were obviously weren't talking at all and they were keeping information to themselves, I assume. But the, the one thing that I couldn't stop thinking about was a number of times I would go to track work at Flemington in particular and they all got stopwatches and I thought, well, times must be important because these, why would these guys be using stopwatches? They're the trainers. And then I realised that as time progressed a little bit further that there are a lot of challenges. Very few people had knowledge on how they could utilise sectional times to some sort of advantage and this is why it was creating this sort of challenge. And I asked a couple of people who had a level of ability with times but not that they weren't forthcoming with any information. They were sort of making changes in their lives as to what they were going to do. And one particular person who's a pretty high-profile person, uh, player today, even with Sky Channel, who's, his name's Tony Brassel, and he used to have a service where he used to provide some sectional times in a graph format, magnificently presented, and he would just pretty much just have the last 200 metres of all the runners and give you some sort of insight. And he was really one of two or two or three people that had material. There was another gentleman by then who, I can't remember his surname, his first name was Paul, but he used to have a product called Pureform, magnificent work that would go into creating his uh, sectional review, a lot of detail, but Back in those days, it was like $5 and you could only buy it from a particular place at Minty's in Queen Street, Melbourne. And the reality is I don't think there were too many subscribers. So I did realise that that could be unsustainable in getting that information on an ongoing basis. And it really did fall back down to you have to do your own thing, create your own data. And I, I, I teamed up with a couple of guys and we purchased an editing machine, which they used to use in the major television stations. And back then, it was around $10,000 to buy the product. But what it allowed us to do is it allowed us to get the videotapes, synchronise them, and then put a time clock up. And that would give us the first insight to understanding the world of timing. And the first fascination was we couldn't believe how there was so much variance in final times. And that really then made me understand that no wonder people could have little confidence in trying to come up with a speed or a benchmarking or par type platform that would give them success on a consistent basis from a betting point of view. And that's before you even try and create something that's going to give you a market. And ultimately, that then sort of led me to the USA. That was the only place that when I did a level of research, because I had an IT background, and when I say I had an IT background, I worked for organisations that were in the IT industry. So that gave me some insight to a whole range of things, particularly in technology from a PC and other software platforms. And what I discovered was that the USA were the most advanced players at the time, to my knowledge, on how they were utilising sectional data. In those days, I think Bayer was one of the prominent guys that used to get articulated, but I found that whilst he was very prominent and, and had a high following, and, and I'm sure he had a level of success, I don't know to what magnitude, 
I didn't find that that was a tool that I could utilise for Australian racing. And once I, I went over there and I spent six weeks in America scouring all the various players, and the one that I was most excited about and gravitated to in a pretty big fashion was Howard Sarton. The, the, I believe he has passed away now, but he was doing some fantastic work with sectional times. And maybe in those days too, probably was early days where he was also doing work with a person by the name of Tom Bromer, who was a obviously a high-level handicapper, professional punter. But Howard Sarton had a platform that could be utilised. So after I sort of did all my research, I decided to invest my money and buy all the, all the material that he had, right down to, he used to have, I think it was bi-monthly publications, I know. I went. I went as far back as I could. Brought several years of it, and then subscribed to his ongoing. Brought all his software, and really then started that venture of understanding how do I now create sectional times? Because I had data, I had some data, but I didn't know how, how to use it. I, I, you know, I was looking at you know what's eleven point five mean, or what's twenty four point six mean when a horse runs that in the four hundred meter. It couldn't help me to bet. And you were still forced into the traditional handicapping way. And basically, with some assistance of some other key people in Australia, one of the guys in the early days was Daniel O'Sullivan. I remember coming back and saying, oh, Jesus, Daniel, I don't know how I'm going to utilise this. This software is all designed for American racing. And I, I had a call with Howard Sarton. He used to have a sheet where you would have to put in your performances. It was all part of his training process. And I recall speaking to him on a particular evening, and he said to me, oh, you, you, you'll do fabulous in America, and you should just focus on American racing, and you, you will have great success. And I explained to Howard, I said, but Howard, I'm only interested in Australian racing. I've got to utilise all this material that you have and I've got to find a way on how I can utilise some of this information into Australian racing. And that's what I did. And I had Daniel O'Sullivan who I spoke with. He was a very young person at the time from the TRB and obviously had big ambition to be a professional punter himself in those days. And he was extremely helpful and he assisted me in coming up with a platform that I could utilise that would benchmark things in a very different way to the traditional way that people would typically create a speed figure. One that I wanted to come up with a method that was going to measure everything in lengths, which would then give me the capacity to convert that to a figure that can be added or subtracted to create a market. And also have big insight on the impact of speed, what it really does. And I've, I've spent pretty much the entire journey, well, whilst I say I've spent pretty much my entire journey since that, and this is in the mid to late 80s up until now, is creating and developing what I call the IVR benchmarking profile, which is incremental velocity rating. And it's all measured in lengths, keeping it very simple. So it doesn't matter who it is that would look at the information, you would have instant insight on the performance of a horses as opposed to just using a numerical number, you know, 100 or 110, whilst that could technically give you a similar 
outcome. The reality is the language in racing is all, all about lengths. So I felt that I could utilise that and then potentially create that for weight differentiations and ultimately a market price. And this is, in a snapshot, that's been the journey. That's a that's an incredible incredible story with so much rich information and I know you know a lot of people will be aware of what you're up to and and how it's sort of playing out today but sort of the the deep insight into how long it's taken and what the path was and uh, I mean some of those names you mentioned I now live in the US grew up in Australia and I've heard of a lot of those names and I mean they're superstars Andrew Byer here is you know, revered, and I'm not sure if he's amassed a fortune in what he's doing, but he's certainly amassed a following. And you know, to have you know touch points with some of those names and people, and to bring that sort of full circle back to Australia is pretty incredible. I just want to ask: in the early days, what was the biggest challenge? Was it the technology, or was it the collection of the data, or was it interpretation of that, or combined all three? Firstly, yes, the collection of data was very painful and extremely difficult second was yes you have to create a software platform i was very fortunate being in the industry of it i was able to access some extremely highly intelligent people because we participated with the big companies of 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 the globe and particularly in those days microsoft was an emerging powerhouse but they we could we could tap into those type of players people from intel other high level software players and that really i got some great help on getting the appropriate software speaking to the appropriate mathematicians to come up with very sophisticated algorithms that would ultimately give you from my perspective, a true measure of performance because once you start collecting this data, you then run into the challenge. Yes, the interpretation, as you you touched on. How do you interpret it? And, and it's easy for me to say now I've got an understanding, <laughs> but in those days what I thought was fantastic six months later was irrelevant because I obviously wasn't interpreting in the correct manner because it's still evolving and it's still, it's still developing. And it just, it took decades to actually arrive at some level of understanding. What What is the impact when a horse goes fast when they're two years old compared to a horse that's three or four? What does it take out of them from run to run? And one of the standard rulings would be a lot of trainers would say, well, but the horse has pulled up fine. Yeah. His track, his track work's been excellent. And, and that's probably all absolutely correct. But... It's not racing, though, because when they race, the dynamics and the the aerobic and anaerobic thresholds is very different. And that was the other thing that I had to do. I spent more than 10 years doing intense research on athletics, other sporting, about how they utilise the, the movement because it came down to understanding movement and what's the impact and then relaying a range of that information on how does that fit with horses. How can I utilise that? What's their what's their what's their threshold? What is their capacity? It's not just about weight. Weight is only one factor, and weight's not the factor that actually stops them completely. It is a a factor that is used because it's been in place for more than a hundred years, 
and it's the most common and the one that everybody's most comfortable with. Now, I don't know about other jurisdictions, but in Australia, we don't have the ability to understand what the weight of a horse is. So if a horse weighs 500 kilograms as his racing weight and he goes up two kilos and there's another horse who weighs 380 kilograms and he goes up two kilograms, who's more, in, who's more impacted? And what happens when the horse comes in in a particular run and he's 520 kilos but he's 20 kilos away from his racing weight? What will that do? Yep. So these are the just the simple things. And I spent many, many years looking at him in the mounting yards as well, really trying to bring it all together. And as crazy as it sounds, Jake, here I am all these years later and I'm still learning. Now, I'm, I'm excited about that, but I'm still learning a lot about the products that I've been developing to be able to utilise them to the best advantage possible which is ultimately winning on the punt that's incredible um i have an i have a a thought because you mentioned some interesting terminology and some language that goes with you know speed and benchmarks and when you when you look at speed is speed the be all and end all because i've seen horses who you know hayless and black caviar and these horses who are quick and will be in the first couple of horses in the run but then or the cleaner for example in recent times but then you've got you know, the Chautauquas and the Divine Madonnas of the world who may look relatively slow in the first sort of part of a race but then can just, you know, launch over the last sort of 400, 600, 200 metres and just look. I mean, there's a horse called All Silent for a while who just was able to do crazy things. Um, so how do you balance that initial speed or the horse having speed with, you know, class and some of those other words that get thrown around? Yes, well, class is an interesting one. Speeds are obviously a very interesting one. I always come back to the relativity of the first point and the most critical point is understanding the profile of the horse first. That's very the first the first essence is understand its profile. Understand, is it a horse that appreciates fast or slow run races? What is his surge in terms of his sprinting capacity? Does he have a, a dynamic turn of foot over any given two or 400 metres? Or does he have dynamic turn of speed like a Chautauqua who can sustain a brilliant burst of speed, probably at, at an absolute elite level for the first 600 metres and then has a sustained rhythm for probably another additional 200 metres after that? So he has a phenomenal burst of speed of 800 metres and this is why he's able to do some crazy coming from impossible positions to win. But they are still dictated by race shape. Yeah. So race shape, which is something that in America, there was many, many articles and discussion points and documents about race shape, which go back more than 30 years. So the, the American players were already onto that back then. The reality is, yes, they were, but they still probably had not all the full data that allows you to have the full entire insight about the rider's capacity of performance on how he's going to handle and measure the tempo of the race. Because ultimately, once you jump the gates, a lot of instructions are all about position in running. Yep. And they say, well, no, we need to go forward. But if there's more speed today, that's going to be a big disadvantage. So pace with race shape 
play the big roles and the surges. Sometimes a horse can have a dynamic turn of foot for four or 600 metres, but if they surge twice in the race, he may not have that capacity to finish or he gets three or four lengths further back than ideal. He may not um, have the advantage. And the other thing is, the, and this has been around for, for as long as I've ever known, it's the bias of the track. Now, the bias of the track, I remember in my young days when I used to get the track, oh, there's the bias, it's on pace. But to study that and really understand what's bias mean, well, around eight, nine years ago, I started you know, putting all their horses into their lanes and I started realising bias actually equals the position they're placed on the track. That bias is always there. It can vary slightly due to wind conditions or different temperaments of rain or the way the grass is cut or whether they aerate the tracks and things like that. But ultimately, they're already there all the time. Every track has a bias, no matter what. It's understanding pre-race the lanes they're going to run in because that's going to create the biggest bias. And what that does do, and this is one of the big things about when people do handicapping, is they forget to understand because I'm, I'm, I'm an avid person that did a decade and a half of handicapping. And I couldn't understand, why isn't this horse performing today? I mean, he's got, he should be peaking tomorrow. Well, he's gotten in the wrong lanes. Hasn't been able to perform. Or he got an exceptional high rating from the start before, but he was out in the fast lanes where he brought three lengths of, of additional speed and over what I call is artificially created a, a figure that's not really true to his profile. Yep. So times and speed and the proper benchmarks allowed me to see that along with the lane marking of knowing what that bias is and how much an advantage a horse technically got. Under normal conditions, there are variables, of course, to that. So when you've figured out the race shape and you've found the horse or the horse's profile that fits the race shape pretty well and it might have a, a distinct enough advantage over most of the horses, so essentially you've figured out the race under your system using your formula doesn't it just drive you mad then when a jockey or a trainer sees it differently because they don't have the approach that you do or the certain knowledge or they don't understand what would advantage their horse the most and then they go out and do something that is outside of the horse's profile or that just ruins the whole race shape and then just completely you know destroys what you were that must drive you incredibly mad does it it can, but the, the power, of course, in that is creating products that allows you to have a level of intel and what I call key markers about preemptive possibilities. And one of the things that I've developed, is, which is a race speed profile, and what that does is it looks at the early speed, the middle and the late speed, and the late speed changes in terms of its dynamic look on how you look at it graphically and figure-wise based on the variables to the distance. But then tying in the track profile and understanding what the standard speed for that track is and what runners are likely to run above it or below it based on their natural racing, which then ties in their PIRs, and then you have some sort of a visual saying, okay, his natural speed matches his PIR, which that's a positive. Or his natural speed doesn't match the PIR, and then, of course, you have to tie in the rider. Because there are key riders that um, 
they're horrible when they go to the front. Yeah. They actually don't understand how to control that pace, and they can be top riders. That's just an area where they've probably still got to develop and learn from. And the reason why that's the difficult one to do is because you have to have ridden many, many horses to be able to truly understand how to control pace up front. A perfect example is a young guy by the name of Chad Schofield who races, rides in Hong Kong now. He had that many rides on front runners and many of them unfortunately would sort of fold or cave in because of misinterpretation of speed. But once you've done that to so many horses, he became dynamic in understanding the pace. And once he got past that curve, he could get on a front rider and he could feel that pace and understand the tempo and control and therefore giving massive advantage for himself and the connections and whoever the punters are that backed it, a bigger chance of winning. So so most riders like to ride off pace and sit in positions that are a bit more comfortable and follow the pattern. And unfortunately, that can lead you astray. So it is it's doing your best to come up with the predictive tools. And if you feel that it's not going to be ridden the way you want, you have to bypass the bet. Okay. So what has been, I guess, the acceptance or, or even obviously <laughs> imitation is the highest form of flattery. What has been the adoption by the industry regarding your work? Because it sounds like, based on what you've just said, a lot of the, I guess, barriers to entry might have been pretty high with your IT background. You know, you've scoured the globe quite literally to find you know, some of the smartest people and developed over decades what you're doing. What have you found to be the overall sort of adoption and acceptance of what you've done um, in the industry? It's it's interesting. I never really stopped to give that a lot of thought about the acceptance because ultimately all us humans, and I'm assuming barring none, there's two critical factors about life. Number one, is we're here to serve. We're here to serve all. But before that comes, we do everything for oneself. So in other words, all these tools that I've created has always been for me. Yep. And then in turn, this enables me to serve others through my work. And like all things, when you look at industries Big industries, I'm not sure if it still is, but I think I believe racing as a general piece is one of the, the top three in terms of overall industries in the world. It's a, it, it's a big industry. And therefore, when they're such giant industries, things can take time to turn. Yeah. And when you've been used to more than a century of doing things in a way that works and gives them – good steady outcome and whilst there still is we, we look at this now this global footprint because everything i do is purely based on global view because my whole life growing up i've only ever been educated to look at things on a global level so there's no difference with everything i do for australian racing it's not just about australia it's about understanding the global platform so one of the big challenges that we still have is we still have a very fragmented global platform and that and what i mean by that is you cannot get race times for every single horse that races anywhere on the planet 
And if someone has it, they're not about to share it. Right. But from an industry point of view, if once the industry can create that vacuum on a global level, then I believe things will become a lot more accepted in the sense of fast-tracking and at that point, they could utilise a lot of the advanced tools that are in place, like what's been created from Daily Sectional's point of view, they would then be able to utilise that to a significant advantage. But when it's fragmented, it becomes challenging because a lot of these handicappers, they've got to deal with other people from other jurisdictions other than Australia and the collective minds come together and whilst they talk about times and they make calculations to a given point, it's in a very, very basic, and I'm saying this in the most humblest manner, where it's just like going to prep school because that's where it's at. Yeah. It's nowhere near at a tertiary or university level a sophistication and that's not because the intelligence isn't there. The intelligence is absolutely there. We don't have the consistency in a united way. If you're in Hong Kong and you're just you're only just using Hong Kong racing or Singapore racing and there's no other horses coming from other jurisdictions, times they'll, they'll get advanced very quickly. But they have a lot of horses come from other parts of the world and there's no times. Have you, have you found that fragmentation within Australia or have you found it to be... Yes. Yes? Yes, it is. There, there's obviously... There is. There is that, uh, that situation. Now, from our perspective internally we do all of australia every tab meeting we cover so that way there from an internal point of view you don't have that problem but of course there's a whole range of logistics costs and all those things that are associated with it and industry has to sort of come up to that speed and recognize that that perhaps you know several millions of dollars every year should be spent in enhancing that area of the business. And they've started. We've put trackers in place. We've got Longines in place now on a couple of the major tracks in Australia. But it's a long way from where it needs to be. But it will come. And I feel that it will come sooner than probably what I first thought. I initially thought it was going to take about 20 years. Yeah. And the reality is I feel that looking at it even just from a global platform, I've noticed in the last couple of years there's been a bit of a surge. More things are, are, are coming and they're looming. There's a lot of GPS data coming up. Unfortunately, the GPS data still has a lot of work to do. And I know a lot of people will, particularly the people that create these products, would say that they're perfect in the best. There is no such thing as perfect because the most sophisticated instruments that come out of places like Israel, they're not available for civilian use. Therefore, can't be used in horse racing. Lastly, not only that, we have to deal with the dynamics of algorithms that when they have a product that's utilised, there's no two horses that look the same in height and size. There's always a variance in shape. And therefore, they have to use finish links and have to sort of artificially create a whole range of other factors to create a sectional time. And that's why there's a variance. But one day in the future, with nanotechnology and other dynamic tools that will become available in the next 
two or three decades because it's all cost prohibitive at the moment, then, you know, we'll see film strips that will go onto horses as close as possible to the nose and all of a sudden, you know, it'll, it'll have some type of global platform. Not only will it be able to measure the horse's weight, weight it'll be able to measure all its performances per every stride, however you want to do it, and very accurately. But it's, it's not going to happen now. It, it is still two or three decades away. So in the meantime, we have to continually evolve with the industry until such a point in time that it is widespread and used across all of Australia as an example, the jurisdiction that I play in. And once that happens, Jake, that's when I feel that the industry could become a lot more sophisticated in, and not saying accepting, because I think they do accept things to a point now, but they could utilise it with a lot more confidence because they wouldn't have, you know, 500 horses that turn up and say, well, we don't have any benchmarking for this horse. Yeah, exactly. We have to go back to our old methods. And that's, that's, not, that's not pretty when that happens. Yeah, no, I've certainly seen some interesting technology around the world. I've seen some sort of drone technology they're trying to utilize for golf because obviously golf, there's a lot of different players and golf balls and there's a lot of ground to cover, so you can't have sort of humans doing it necessarily and the video coverage isn't always perfect. And then there's, you know, some ski racing in the European Alps where they've tried different technology. There's other video technology they use in some of the US sports. So I guess it'll just take some time to develop that and, and then the education and like you said, the confidence around that's gonna be a, a bit of a slow burn, but it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting way to get some more detailed information out there which can sort of tell the story a little bit better. So it'll be interesting to see what the adoption is in sort of the racing world I've seen here in the US. The unfortunately the products sort of dying a little bit and the, the age demographics aren't great and therefore the sponsors aren't coming and the, you know all those types of things so i guess we'll have to wait and see uh what the next few decades holds on the tracking side and seeing what the adoption is of the, the different jurisdictions and industries about that and if it's a push from the the bodies who are sort of controlling racing in their jurisdiction or it has to come from you know the trainers wanting to get that edge and then like you said whether they provide it publicly as a whole different ball game so there's a lot of different variables you're right there jake and one of the big things if we look at you see all these social media trends the whole new way of how things are measured in terms of understanding profiles of markets just like we have our own techniques of understanding the profile of racehorses reality is becoming more and more data driven so therefore the dynamics in the data is what excites the new generation. They're a lot more fast-paced. They want to do a lot more things, and they're not going to spend 20 hours doing form. What they're going to do is they want to get sophisticated modelling because these are players that come from big corporate backgrounds where they're used to utilising software tools that could cost anywhere from you know 200000 to a couple of million dollars and do very, very elaborate and sophisticated work. And ultimately... They want to become that player. They don't want to be sitting there dissecting form for 20 hours. They want all the the technology to do the work. It crunches out the the profile and not be in a situation like where you have to have these big syndicates, which are still super successful today, operating. We're going to see a lot more single-bodied players come out and utilise these sophisticated tools, and they want to be data-driven. So... That's the future of the young generation coming through. Now, if that's not going to be there for them, then they're going to be looking at other industries. 
They're not going to sit there and invest their money in horse racing. They're going to invest it in other sporting events where that data is available to them, even though they have no knowledge of that industry. But they will allow to have an interpretation of, of it through data. And this is what we, from a collective point of view, when it comes to horse racing, that the more sophisticated the data that can be produced, the greater the propensity of the next generation to come in and use. And that also comes down to product. The product of what we see vision of screen, in many places it's disgusting, absolutely disgusting. You would not – a lot of these products that we see on how vision is shot for horse racing would not survive at all. It will be completely shut down and people would get the sack on who directs and films those visions. Because that is so important, the product, the way it's shot. Things We're only just starting to get HD. But when we look at Hong Kong, who's the most successful model, now people talk about Hong Kong saying, oh, but it only has these two, you know, these two meetings a week. It doesn't matter whether it's one or ten. You sit back and understand the way they handle themselves in a professional manner. And it starts first and foremost with the product. So you can have excitement and engagement. It's done where you can go on their website and you can get multi-view angles. Not available in most other jurisdictions. Should be. Should be. And the ability not to have all these crazy ways of uh, watching a race where you have head-on for 600 metres, it is absolutely disgraceful that that even happens. I... Sit back and I look, here you are. Whether you're a $1 punter or a punter that's having $100,000 on a horse, who on earth wants to see their horse that they've invested their money on for six or 700 metres going head on? Who wants that? Nobody. And this is one of the challenges. And this doesn't just happen in this jurisdiction. This also happens in other jurisdictions. There's a simple formula. Hong Kong do it best. It's a very simple model, can all be created today. That creates more excitement. Get more data out there, make it more available. The new generation use tools to have an advantage. Well, they might have to go through experiences of wins and losses before they get it right, but that's where the future is. And unless the horse racing industry goes down that path and starts first and foremost with their product, and get it visually shot right in a consistent manner, then everything else becomes uphill, and that will have an impact, and the, and the new generation will not look at racing the way they should. Absolutely, absolutely, and you can just tell when you're watching a Hong Kong meeting, even if you haven't seen a race there for six months, and you know you're probably going to honestly going to see a few Aussie jockeys there, but you see yes. some of those short price favourites, and it's as if you know all of Asia's back this one horse and Marrera's on it and it's three back defense and you can just feel it through your television and you're you know 10 hours away and it yep. just jumps out of the screen at you and you can't really explain it or point to it necessarily unless you're a pro but there's just something about it that just grabs you in and it's quite amazing that's right Jay because it's exciting they they take absolute pride in their product and it's all done in a very professional manner. They won't muck around. You want to get the head on, you can go to the multi-view angle. If you're looking for different shots so you can understand depth and, and width and things like that. But for the standard player, they have it in a very, very simple format. And it's 
the same shot all the time and therefore consistency in product creates success. <laughs> Coca-Cola, the soft drink, do you reckon they've changed their formula of success? No chance. They've had that. No way. They would never do it because that's the first sign of failure. And oddly enough, years ago, Australian racing, outside of not having the highly sophisticated cameras that we can have today, they were doing things in a good manner, but just they've lost their way. So I'm curious, Vince, have you found any, and you don't have to go in detail or anything like that, but have you found any patterns or styles that over time have just have won for you and or has that changed over time have you noticed any things where you can sort of sort of just jumps out at you off the page and think yep this is one of those certain scenarios that this is just going to be a good bet for me or is it every race is individual and you've got to treat it as a i guess its own dynamic instrument well this is another very interesting question that you've created there jake and a, a very powerful one that doesn't have any just one simple answer. It has, I would say, multiple answers too, and that wouldn't even be covering at all. But if I can touch on a few of them. Firstly, yes, you can. When we look at the architecture and the way I structure things from a sectional times point of view, I'm a big believer. First and foremost, you need to be able to at least time horses from the 1200 home. So in other words, what, what I'm saying is that in most races, you're going to have 80% coverage of time data about performances of horses. And in the longer races, you're going to have about half the race covered. Ideally, you'd like it to be further back than that, maybe 1,600 metres. So what happens is if you're only clocking the way that, that you did it traditionally in Australia, is you'd have the final time and you'd would have a 600-metre time that's provided, that would give the first basic level of insight of how fast the horses travel from the starting gates to the 600-metre point and then how fast they've travelled from the 600 metres to the finish line. And then there was a little bit more creativity where people would then perhaps put in the 200 and the 400. The reality is what I've learnt is, first and foremost, if you're only going to follow that type of method and that type of adoption, you will not be successful in the sense that you're going to lose a lot of opportunities because that only covers about 40%. Therefore, you're going to be restricted in the value and the proposition you find. And most importantly of all is the ability to understand how to analyse. So if you're only given 40% of the race to analyse from a data perspective, you're going to be in a lot more trouble than a person who's got 80% to analyse because he's going to be able to see a lot more things that have gone on from a, a race shape point of view where pressure in, in direction of rider decisions and ultimately the pressure of the race because sometimes it's created in the very first 400 metres and it's already fizzled out by the time they've gone another 400 metres. So, yes, I have found some outstanding strategies that have been a big, big assistance to me. Firstly, the identification of flat line runs. Very powerful from my perspective is because I'm a big believer, if you can avoid a loser, you've made more money. Yep. And sometimes that's not thought enough. So I'm very, very big. When horses can come out and perform, they've performed sensationally 
visually, get a very strong rating. But the data is indicating through the historical benchmarking of the last 30 years that they've gone a dozen or more lengths faster than the standard. And typically, for in excess of 85% of horses, that articulates that they are going to have a far inferior performance at their next start unless they get an extremely slow pace and sometimes 20 or 30 lengths slower than what they encountered at that most recent start or they have a break of longer than 21 days. And what that does is if that horse turns up at its next start and it's $2.80 favourite, I just and I've and I'm I've got the level of confidence that I put a line through. Well, I've just taken a big chunk of the market out and given myself a huge advantage. Now you will never see that if you're only clocking to the six hundred ever. You will never see that because you have to understand the articulation of the pressure from the start of the gates. And I feel that from all my learning, even from what I learned from the USA, you really got to start. Somewhere around, in the short course races, you've got to start at the 800. In the middle distance races, you need to start at least at the 1,000 to 1,200 metres. That's where you've got to start because it can come on at any time up until that point or before that point or slightly above that because that's the other thing I learned is the squeeze, what I call the mid-race squeeze. It has been a phenomenal tool in finding some unbelievable value. And I'm not talking about value that a horse is $2 and it's $4 and it's next start, which is still it's still great, but I'm talking about horses that potentially at their next start is 15 and they should be $3. But their run looks good, but not enough merit for you to be able to re-handicap and dramatically shorten that price for, for a few things. Number one, you have the restriction of the platform saying, oh, but it's only coming out of a, a rating 65 race or 70, but the horse has just performed at group three level because it comes back down to how you've got your architecture. The horse at the from the 1,200 to, to the 600-metre mark over that 600 metres has produced a phenomenal mid-race surge, which he's now tired due to the lactic acid buildup and a whole lot of other variables that he hasn't been able to finish off, and his run's forgotten to a certain point. Yeah. Because it's extremely difficult to measure that with your eye. And a lot of good judges have a fantastic eye but nothing beats the, the the eye that can be placed on data because that's where it should be placed. So you can see it in detail and therefore give you the confidence because it comes back down to confidence. What I've also learnt is I've had tremendous advantages. It's amazing. The only horses that I've seen that can handle high pressure and back up at their next start are three-year-olds. Two-year-olds can't do it. Four-year-olds and older certainly can't do it, and there's always the exception, of course, and perhaps like a horse like the cleaner is one of them. But we're talking about every 1,000 horses, there might be a handful that have that capability of being able to overcome that if with quick backups. Also, I see situations where I get tremendous advantage about distance changes. One of the hardest tools to be able to gauge from a rating and handicapping point of view is how's a horse going to handle the change in distance? whether he's coming up or down. Is that an advantage or a disadvantage for the horse? He's never been at some of the distances they climb. Well, I've definitely been able to learn through the insight that that can be very well understood. So Now, um, you asked... Yep, sorry. Sorry to interrupt. I'm curious how the 
obviously you've got the data and the the tools to be able to run this model but how i'm curious about the thinking how did you come to that thinking about a lot of these theories because it seems similar to some of the theories you might find athletics for example where you know if someone's had a peak performance i mean we all have it you go for a run for twice as long as you normally do and your legs are sore you got a bit of delayed onset soreness for a couple of days and you're unlikely Correct. to be able to do that again in seven or ten days. Is that do you sort of cross pollinate some of those different theories and sports and I mean lactic acid is what happens when you run eight hundred meters as quick as you can. If you're if you're a horse and you've run a lot quicker than normal, you may have some sort of similar effects. Is that how you've sort of approached it? That was a I did a lot of research from an athletic point of view of movement to help me to get better insight on how I could apply it into horse racing, absolutely. That's a, it's incredible to think about things. And obviously, you know, you think about things in certain ways and there's a whole, I guess, branch now of science and economics of the behavioral side, which has a, a lot of interesting insights and a lot of it is based on what the, I guess, the fallibilities of the human mind are. And as Ralph said on his episode, and he'll, you know, shout it as loud as he can that the eye is... You know, even the trained eye, it can, it can lie to you and you've got to use all the other instruments around you to try and formulate a, a more informed opinion if that's possible. And it sounds like you've gone to large and long depths to be able to do that. Jake, it's, yes, that's correct. And it's something that regardless of what we do in our lifetime and whatever we strive to be the best that we can be in, because that's really ultimately what part of this whole journey on the planet is. It's all about being the best you can be. And hopefully evolving to that on your last breath, that you've reached that attainment, that you could be the best you could be. And that means you're constantly working on your craft continuously and ultimately learning about what it is that you're working on and understanding how can you utilise it in all the different facets. And this is a very, very important part of the, the, of the journey is exactly that, is understanding how this can be utilised to assist you. And it all comes back down to putting the commitment in, constantly running modules and allowing the technology, instead of you thinking of all the questions, let the technology, we, we, we run some pretty sophisticated software tools and we, we let the software do all the talking. It creates all the questions. I don't have to create them. It will come back and give you all the different weightings and saying these are all the different scenarios that have taken place based on the last 30 years on the data that you have. Yeah. And, and one of the big things is sort of a little bit of a digression on coming back to your pertinent point about the question that you asked, does the, the race equal what happened last start? What I notice is this. If horses run at 1,400 metres at one track, and they go back to that same track with similar conditions, there's a high probability that horse could run up to that performance. When they venture away from that, there's a high probability that that won't happen. That could be better or it could be worse. And ultimately, the past definitely doesn't equal the future. As we know with thoroughbreds, they're athletes in their own right, and they have injuries. They have situations that occur. I have seen with many, many detailed performances of horses, like let's say in 2014, 15, a certain horse is three years of age. 
hitting their prime. They usually say your horse hits the prime in the first 20-odd starts. If you do that research, it basically says that that's when they're most effective. But ultimately, they could then have some injuries. They could get situations where the grounds are unfavourable because they can't or they won't perform on very wet tracks or very dry tracks. And then two or three years later, they re-emerge and create, recreate the form they created when they were three. And they're now six and seven. And I call it running above themselves. But ultimately, that's one of the things that you can pinpoint with the profiling horses. So the, the challenge is the past doesn't necessarily equal the future of what happens in an event. And because there's certain things historically or no horse has ever done this or that, yes, that's true. But when you look at it from a mathematical point, you will always see that there are very low occurrences. And the good thing about when you're looking and working with sectional times, you can have large volume of data. And when you've got large volume of data, you can then see things in a very different manner and allow you to have insights about what some of the possibilities are in what's about to happen today. But I'm a big believer every race is unique to that moment and it has nothing to do with the next or after that race because some trainers are, are preparing their horse for three runs down the track. But you can follow that pattern. You can see the improvement. When I measure the early speed, particularly like what they've gone maybe in the first 400 from the 1600 to the 1200 metre mark, I can get a first gauge and I realise, goodness me, this horse from one run to the other has improved five lengths just in early conditioning. So I know the horse is trending in the right direction. We're clocking all the barrier trials. Why do we do that? Not so much people say, oh, you, you, the barrier trials, how can you utilise that? What happens is with a lot of barrier trials, there'll always, there'll always be a certain movement in part of that track work of the trial where they'll give you a little insight through the data that they can run it at a certain speed over a given two or 400 metres and that automatically, if, you've, if you use it as a key mark ind marker indicator that for, for that particular track for track work, you'll notice straight away, okay, when they're hitting this sort of number, well, they have to be at a, already at a very good level. And good level for me means that they're obviously coming through without injuries and they're trending towards what they did last preparation. And that's what I look for. I don't look for, oh, he's won the trial or he's done this. I'm looking for very key markers, which might only be over given 200 metres because a lot, a lot of trainers are very intelligent. They don't want to overwork their horses in trial. But the horse is going to, at some point, run to his natural speed. And if you can capture that, it's going to give you a big advantage about how they're preparing themselves. And then lastly, of course, is the mounting yard, how they parade on the day, which is another tool within itself. Yep. Yeah, certainly. And I think it's a it's an interesting sort of concept you touched on about how, you know, using all the the power of data essentially. And I think we've you've seen it with something like chess for example. And I know talking about you know, <laughs> a finite game, but the, the stories of Fisher and and Kasparov and these guys playing in the early years to against some of those computers and then how it developed to a point where I think there's a famous story of Kasparov played against the machine and he just went home, sat in his hotel room and stared at the ceiling for hours wondering what just happened. And I guess I'm sure that, you know, talking about, you know, chess as a more of a finite game as opposed to racing where there's a lot more variables and a lot more different things factored in. And But it's it's funny how the, <laughs> over time it got from one point to another pretty quickly with chess and and not embracing the all the information and the computing power these days is probably a dangerous track to go down uh, unless you do have a, 
a visual edge in the mounting yard or something else that just can't possibly be fit into the computer. Jake, you're so right about that. I'm, I'm more, I always have this philosophy. There's a couple of key things. One of them, of course, is that the the capacity and the ability to interpret and get a manifestation of a whole lot of data. But the one that overrides all those things, this is one of the reasons why I guess a lot of the syndicates in that work towards data in allowing them to do what they do. What brings a lot of the punters undone is not their inability to think well or the clarity in articulating who are the, the finite possibilities of a given race. It's the emotions is what is one of the biggest uh, impacts on a punter, the psychology of the emotion. In racing and in many other things that we can do in life, particularly in racing, we're getting emotionally invested. Yeah. And by being emotionally invested, that actually has an impact on your next outcome. Whether you've had a good experience will give you one outcome, and if you have a bad experience, will give you a different outcome. But it has an emotional tie. And what that does is it also resonates into when that horse that you may have backed that lost, and you probably thought, oh, and he should have won, because no different to a horse trainers and jockeys they're always looking for the reasons perhaps why their horses didn't perform punters do the same yeah why did my horse perform oh i was unlucky didn't get out of 200 it's normal very normal i've done it millions (laughs) of times myself so it's not it's there's nothing abnormal and there's nothing wrong with that by the way i i see that as being just us mere mortal human beings the reality is though when you look at it at the underlying and really get into the psychology of the mind the subconscious thinking that level of energy that we've vibrated will carry itself to the next time we see that horse and you might have a tendency to be a bit more favorable towards it even though you might not be consciously aware of that but subconsciously it has an emotional impact on you and therefore can skew to a certain extent what's going to happen now that may not be the case for the real hardened professionals but we're talking about the mainstream semi-professionals or ones or people that want to become professional. What about those? Because that's the next group of people. You can't become the most dynamic, best professional player without going through experience. Absolutely. And the experience is, is exactly that. So the emotional tie. Also that comes with the emotion is if you've had a big loss and you're punting to a pool, that starts to impact you. Can I handle it? Will I do that again on the next bet? And then you might say, no, well, I'm sticking to my plan, and you get defeated again. Whether you like it or not, we're not robots. It starts to affect you emotionally. And once that impact comes in to play and you you don't change that rhythm, you usually slide in the wrong direction because you, you start to second-guess your thoughts, you start to second-guess the chances you thought, you're thinking perhaps you're reading things in the wrong way, and trouble and chaos is created. Yeah, you just need to ask any poker player about being on tilt, and they'll give you the yep. same same analogy. I'm very and grateful for all your time, Vince, but I have a couple more quick ones, if you don't mind. Sure. Where do you see daily sectionals or incremental velocity ratings? I hope they got that correct in another <coughs> yeah. five or ten years' time. Well, in the humblest way, I've only ever had one visual. Firstly, I have a simple philosophy that I'll continue to the last breath. That's the first step. And hopefully that last breath is in a long time from now. But I've never had nothing but a global vision. So that's exactly what I see. I see it globally, and that's nothing less than that. 
Interesting. Okay. And in your time doing the work, what are some of the most exceptional performances you've witnessed or, or calculated? I know there's horses like Frankel in recent times, American Pharaoh here, over here in the US, obviously Black Caviar and Winks and horses like that. Is there a couple that stand out over the last sort of recent times or even longer further back? Well, of course, if we're looking at recent times, <clears throat> Winks is has been outstanding, no question. Still a little bit short of Black Caviar, who's probably been the most dynamic performer that I've seen in the modern times, particularly in the last decade. Just unbelievably, the sustained speed of that particular horse and what makes it so dynamic is the stride is magnificent. The ability of its aerobic capacity and having the ability to produce and consistently stay at a high velocity for a 1,000 metres is what makes that horse a cut above most horses I've seen. And, and a prime example is when you look at a horse like Chautauqua, who's been outstanding in, in some of its races, and you've seen what it did in devastating style at Hong Kong, from a benchmarking point of view, I've never had that horse higher than around 11 and a half lengths above the benchmark standard over the short courses. And when we look at a horse like Black Caviar, I used to consistently run between 16 and 18 lengths above the benchmark. And that means there's about a second gap. And what that mean, What I mean by a second gap, it doesn't mean that horse is one whole second faster. That means that horse has overall one second of greater capability in handling itself under all the variable pressures. If it's slow run race, it doesn't matter. If it's fast run race, it doesn't matter. It's the capacity to be able to sustain it at a high level. And then you get horse like Wings. So I made it pretty clear when it won its first Cox Plate. I was, I was very confident this horse is an arc horse. It's probably the first horse I'd seen in a long, long time. The one I'd seen before that was a horse called Better Loosen Up, which I thought was a dynamic for Japan and ended up winning the Japan Cup. But Winks is certainly the runner that I have no doubt if they, if the, if the team wanted to focus on the arc, that could win the arc. There's no doubt about it because I've clocked a lot of horses from around the world and very few are better than Winx when it comes to staying capabilities. Well, she's done basically everything in Australia, so I, I hope she decides to head over to Europe or, you know, Dubai or some of those places and spread the wings a little just to see see what happens, so... It'd be awesome because this is a horse that can handle wet or dry, exactly. fast or slow. Yep, yep, yep. All right, Vince, uh, I really appreciate your time. I had a million points I wanted to get to, you know, the betting side, the bankroll management, you know, the markets, odds fluctuations. But, of course, I'm very happy to have had the chance to chat with you. Before I let you go, where can people reach out to you if they want to uh, take a bit more of a look into what you're doing and, um, and find you in the, in the world of the internet? Well, all they've got to do is just pretty much uh, log in dailysectionals.com.au and we'll be right there. Splendid. Vince, thank you very much again and I hope to talk to you soon. That would be very nice and, and thank you for allowing me to communicate some of my thoughts. 